Welcome to the Nathan Berry Show, Episode 4. Today's episode is a recording of the self-publishing hangout that we did back in August 2013. It features it my features friends my Sasha, friends, Sasha Paul, Paul, and Justin, and who have all done amazing self-publishing projects. Amazing self-publishing it starts projects. with Sasha introducing himself. Let's jump in. So um, I guess I'm um, mainly a designer. Um, Maybe let's say 51% designer, 49% developer. And um, I've wrote, so my first book, uh, first self-published book was about design. And I wrote that about uh, one year and a half ago now. And it was a really short book called uh, Step-by-Step UI Design. And I sold it pretty cheap for, uh, for about uh, $12, but it was uh, really successful. So. It inspired me to uh, write a second book, and this time uh, it wasn't about design, but about coding. And it's called uh, Discover Meteor, about the Meteor JavaScript framework. And I sold it uh, for a much higher price, um, and it, it was a much uh, larger book as well, and it also did uh, really well. So um, yeah, I mean, the reason I got the idea for uh, this whole Hangout thing is because uh, all throughout um, working on both books, um, I, I was really inspired by what other people were doing, like Nathan, and uh, and also listening to product people and seeing what Paul was doing. So I thought it would be interesting just to get together and compare our uh, approaches and what we do the same, what we do differently, and just uh, get to hang out. All right. So Paul, you want to uh, jump in next with your intro? Cool. So yeah, I am Paul Jarvis. I'm also probably about 51% designer, 49% programmer, and about and I've been doing that for about 15, 16 years. And the couple of years ago, I decided that it would be easier for me to write a book than to keep emailing people all the same information all the time. I was a vegan cookbook. It's called Eat Awesome. And I sold that for five bucks. Now it's a dollar. And I did that two years ago. And then last year I wrote and self-published a book called Be Awesome at Online Business. Uh, And that is about web design from the perspective of a client. So if somebody's starting an online business and they need to get a developer or a designer, developer, content people, that sort of thing. So how to kind of take your business from start to finish in building it out or refreshing it online. And I'm writing a new book right now called Everything I Know, which should be available in September. And the Kickstarter project goes live on the first day that Kickstarter Canada happens, which is September 9th. Nathan, how about you uh, You introduce yourself too? Yeah, so I'm also a designer. Uh, I think that's a prerequisite to be on this panel. Maybe not. <laughs> no. Um, so I started as a web designer and then gradually moved to software and interface design, uh, worked at a startup leading their design team for a few years, um, and then left to sell some iPhone apps and go back to freelancing and consulting and then wrote the app design handbook, which was my like first really successful product. And that helped me move out of, uh, the consulting world into the product world. And uh, then started building an audience with that, followed that up with designing web apps, and then launched ConvertKit, which is an email marketing tool to help uh, launch and sell products. And then most recently wrote Authority, which is basically everything that I've learned over that whole process on making eBooks profitable. Beautiful. And I'm Justin Jackson. I'm not a designer, so I'm I'm the odd man out here. Uh, I'm a product manager during the day. I think I'm actually also the only person that has a full-time job right now. Uh, I think the rest Looks of these. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I'm a product manager during the day. I uh, host a podcast called Product People, and I'm uh, about to release my first book. Um, on September 1st, it's called Amplification, and it's uh, the lessons I've learned about getting, uh, building an audience and getting content out to lots and lots of people. 
So I'm at uh, I'm I'm a I'm at that stage. I'm just about to publish my first thing. Cool. Uh, one thing I want to talk about is why you decided to publish it in in a format that's not an ebook. So I yeah. think that's going to be interesting. All right. So let's start with writing, and uh, maybe specifically how. How do you choose a topic? How do you decide what you're going to write about in the first place? Um, let's start with Paul. How did you decide what you're going to write about? Sure. And I mean, for me, I typically the books that I've been writing are I've started small, like I've started with tweets or emails to people, and then if people are enjoying that and retweeting what I'm tweeting, or if I find I'm sending the same email to people over and over again, then I might turn it into a blog post or an article for another website. And then if that seems to do well and gain traction, then I think, yeah, well, this should this could possibly be a book. So the first the vegan cookbook, I did that. I was writing the same email to people who wanted ideas for recipes and information about being vegan. And same with the um, the Be Awesome Online business, the second book. I was writing, I was telling my clients basically the same thing. And I've been doing this for 15, 16 years. So I found clients were having the same issues and asking the same questions for lots of lots of time. So I figured if I wrote a book that was kind of about web design, but not for web designers, there's a lot of books about web design for web designers. If I wrote a book about web design for people who are just looking to do web design, then maybe that would be helpful. And then the new book is about creativity and stuff. And that's just my random ramblings about creativity and fear and, and that sort of stuff. So mostly the topics come naturally, and then I write a bit about them, then I write a bit more, then I write a bit more, and then they eventually turn into books. If I try to write a book from scratch, I don't know if I could do it. Yeah. I'm just laughing because someone in the chat room asked the first question, which was, what kind of product do I use in my hair? <laughs> that would be Chase Reeves from uh, Fizzle and Think Traffic. And uh, yeah. The, the other comment of, oh, God, Chase is here. Good luck staying on topic is very accurate. <laughs> he already derailed I us. Chase. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I feel excluded on that topic because I can't really talk about hair products. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you have like a little beard comb or something. <laughs> That's going to be our first collaborative book is uh, all about men's grooming. Uh, exactly. Let's... Let's go. Let's get back on topic. Uh, Sasha, how did, how did you choose your topic for your your book? So although both topics are pretty different, I think one thing they have in common is they're both things I was already doing. So I was already uh, uh, designing an app, and I decided to write a book about that process. And for the Meteor book, I was already working on an open source app, and uh, the book is kind of a you know compilation of all the knowledge that. Um, that I got through that to, through that app. So uh, in both cases, you know, I didn't set out. I, I didn't. I didn't set out. You know, thinking, oh, what will I write about now? It was more. Uh, you know, I was already doing it, and writing a book was a good way to. Uh, well, for in in the case of the open source app, the the app is free, so the book is a way to indirectly monetize the app and support the development of the app. So I think you know, for me. Since I'm not a full-time writer, uh, it's important to um, to have a, to find a way how writing can integrate with the other things you do, and uh, that's how I choose my topics, I guess. Perfect. And uh, Nathan, how about yourself? Yeah. So since my first book was about app design, uh, that just came about because I had lots and lots of people asking me about that topic. That's what I was. Uh, most of the freelance projects I was doing were, you know, iPhone and iPad applications. And uh, so I got asked about it all the time. Lots of developer friends wanted to know how to make their apps better. And I didn't have a good place to point them. And so I decided to start writing down what I was working on. Um, and we can come into this later, but one thing that inspired me is uh, I worked on it just as a hobby. Like, so, you know, I was trying to help out friends, and I had no idea that you can make money off of it until Sasha published his post about the money he made from step-by-step -step UI design. So thanks, Sasha. <laughs> uh, and we'll get into pricing and making money for it and all of that. Um, but that was a big turning point for me when I realized that writing a book didn't just have to be a hobby or a labor of love. It could also be a business. 
Perfect. And uh, for myself, uh, I've gone through a little bit of a, a pivot, I guess. I have. Um, I decided I was going to write this book called Build and Launch at buildandlaunch.net. And I had about uh, over a thousand people sign up for that mailing list so far. But as I was, I started emailing them right away and asking them questions. So what do you want to know about? What's your biggest struggle, et cetera. And uh, during that time, I wrote this uh, essay called This is a Web Page that ended up going really crazy. And I had a bunch more people kind of jump on the list. And just from what was coming back, I realized a lot of people wanted to know how could they publish things uh, like blog posts and get a lot of people to uh, pay attention. So I decided to, uh, sh in some ways, shelve that idea for the first book and instead write uh, a little mini course on um, the, the subject of amplification as a response to all these people I'm talking to on my mailing list. So for me, uh, the topic came from just talking to the people on my mailing list and uh, figuring out what they actually needed as opposed to what I wanted to give them. Yeah, I don't good. think any of us were uh, were writers. At least I know we were. None of us were writers full time before we wrote our first book, which is uh, an interesting thing to to note. Well, I think we had blogs, but uh, yeah, yeah, we weren't. but not book authors. Right, right. Yeah. Well, I think it's because. You know, the books we wrote, uh, a lot of it is our own personal experience. So if we were just writers, we wouldn't have that experience designing, uh, developing, running apps. Yep, that's true. So we all write on uh, things that other people saw us as experts on in some way. So like, Paul, you know, you had tons of people asking you about vegan recipes and that kind of thing. and. What I always tell people is think about what people ask you. And that's what people are, you know, people in your circles are perceiving you as some kind of an expert in. You know, your, your grandma asking you to fix your computer over the holidays, she perceives you as some, as some kind of an expert in that sort of thing. And so just always look, not that you should write a book about that, but just always look around for what people are asking you. And if you're hired for a particular job, you know, either through clients or a full-time job, then your boss thinks you're an enough of an expert in that topic that you're worth paying. And so I think there's a decent chance that you know something on those topics that other people would pay to learn. So do you guys think it's important to be a good writer? Like, you know, not Shakespeare, but um, how important is writing skills compared to actual knowledge and being an expert in a field? Huh. Well, I think you have to at least be interested in, you have to be at least interested in learning the craft and getting better. Uh, I, I mean, I don't, I don't think I'm an amazing writer, but I like communicating. I've always liked communicating, and I think that definitely helps. Uh, what do you think, Nathan? I think what, what you said about communicating is, is important. Um, I think we all care more about communicating effectively than, than maybe writing perfectly. Um, but if you're waiting to start writing until you're a good writer, then uh, that's really, really bad. I had somebody email me uh, maybe three months ago, and they said, I started reading, reading your blog. I read the, the most recent post, and then I went back and read your very first post, and then I read it chronologically from the first post to the most recent. And my first response was to be a little bit terrified because – I didn't think that anybody would care that much, but also that those first posts were really terrible. And that's actually what they said. They came, they said like your first posts were really, really terrible and they didn't have any confidence. The writing, like it, it seemed like you didn't know if you're providing any value. Um, but they said that as they read through it over the next year of posts, they could see the writing getting a tiny bit better, uh, that I had a little bit more confidence with every single post. And then I was delivering more value to every to the readers with with every post. So I, I would say start writing and use that to get better at writing, um, and just focus on communicating clearly, and you'll get there.
good point on on that just hearing you say that is uh sometimes i get the feeling like uh i'm not sure if i'm the oldest one here i'm 33 and so sometimes i watch like the young guys in our industry and they're they start you know they just jump into stuff and they start doing it and uh Sometimes that can be a little bit debilitating thinking, well, like, you know, all these guys are way ahead of me and I'm jumping in now basically at, at square zero. And uh, the problem with that thinking is that that means you're never going to start anything. And uh, I think the best advice I've had is the best time to start was yesterday. And even, you know, the next best time is to start today. And even if you're, you know, and an old guy that's way behind everyone else. The only way you're going to get better is by starting today and uh, not worrying about, you know, catching up or whatever. Yeah, and uh, I mean, I'm older than you, but. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I kind of feel the same way. Like, I don't think I don't think I'm a great writer, but I know I'm a lot better now than I was when I started writing. And the only way that I got better was by writing. And I think, Nathan, you even touched on this in your book, Authority, how writing 500 to 1,000 words a day, like making it a daily practice, I think you even hit like uh, a whole year of doing that every single day. And I've been working at that as well. And it really helps to, and it's not stuff. And I think people, like I get emails from people saying like, well, I don't see you publish work every day. And I don't think that's the point. Like some of the stuff I write, is crap and I would never publish it. But the fact that I'm sitting down and I'm writing every single day, is helping me get better ideas. And the more that I show up to do that writing, the more likely I am to have ideas that are worth publishing eventually. Like if I sit down seven days a week, one of those ideas might be good enough to be a blog post. But if I sat down once and it wasn't good, then there's another week where I don't have anything to say publicly on, on my website or someone else's. Yeah, that's good. And I think there's a, a few questions in the chat room about the process of writing. Like, yeah, you mentioned uh, Nathan's uh, thousand words, um, and also just which software we use, and uh, you know, like when when we start writing, what steps do we actually take? Why don't yeah. you lead off with that? Yeah, sure. that's a good one. So, I I didn't have like a, a fixed a fixed amount of words uh, to write every day. Um, I think I approach writing more maybe like design where, you know, you start out with, with a sketch and then maybe you have a, a low fidelity mockup, then a high fidelity, then you start coding and every every iteration gets closer and closer to the real thing. So uh, for me, it was really like this where I would just start with an outline of the chapters, um, then, you know, start filling them up and and I mean, I think every chapter, at least for a Discover Meteor, um, so I, I co-wrote the book with uh, Tom Coleman, who's a very good Meteor developer, but together we we must have uh, gone through each chapter maybe 10 times or more, you know, just fixing, fixing things and making things clearer, rewriting stuff. So um, it, it was very, very iterative, at least for that book. Um, but like Nathan, do you like, you just write the whole thing in one go, or is it also yeah, start, like finish, start at the first chapter and just write straight through to the end. No. Uh, <laughs> so what I do is I write a really rough outline, um, you know, probably like those outlines that you wrote in high school for essays or whatever, just indenting when for different sections or different thoughts. Um, and then what I do is refine that a little bit, and I use a program called Scrivener. And I make a blank document on the side. So I make a folder for every, what I think will be every chapter and then a blank document for every section within that. And then what I do is I, I mark each one of them as unfinished or as like that I haven't started them. And then when I come to sit down to write for the day, I look at that, scan through it and see what am I most interested in writing about? Do I want to write about, you know, using email marketing to promote your book, or do I want to about, write about the writing process, you know, for authority? Um, and so then I just jump in, like all the topics are predefined. So then I just jump in at the specific one that interests me the most at the moment. Mm. Uh, and then one of the reasons I like Scrivener so much is it makes it really easy to rearrange those sections. And so I feel like I can try out different, you know, the book flowing in a different way. 
and then I can click one button and see it as one long manuscript. And so then I can go work on all the transitions and um, things like that. So that's how I write. Uh, like we mentioned, like somebody mentioned earlier, I write a thousand words a day. That's inspired by Chris Gillibo. Um, and uh, he has a great post. I think it's on, on his homepage about um, writing 300 some thousand words a year. Um, I highly recommend reading that. Um, and I track that that writing in an app I wrote called Commit. And so I have this little reminder that pops up at four o'clock every day and says, hey, were you going to write a thousand words today? And so I just check it off and say yes. Uh, and it's at, uh, I should look, it's at about 380 days in a row right now. I have the same reminder, but mine swears at me because <laughs> that, that's what I need to actually get it done. <laughs> Nice. Uh, as a as a beginner, I started writing my stuff. I created a like a text outline, and then uh, just in like text edit, and then I started writing right in iBooks. Uh, so I just created the sections and just started writing right in there. And uh, about halfway through, I realized uh, I needed to do things like collaborate, get an editor to look at it, um, and I also wanted to track how much like how much time I was spending writing. And so about halfway through, I switched to draft. That's uh, draftin.com. And, um, but to tell you the truth, I mean, I, I, even with draft, I keep switching between iBooks and draft and, and sometimes I write in iBooks and sometimes I write in draft. But I, I feel like I'm still figuring that stuff out. And for myself, I can't, I've, that idea of writing a thousand words a day doesn't motivate me. Uh, what motivates me is when I get an idea and I'll just stay up all night writing it uh, and then I'll be done and I might have three or four days of nothing. But And maybe I'll change my mind, but that kind of regimented like every single day uh, hasn't worked for me yet, but kind of following the, the passion and uh, just writing when I feel like writing is working for me so far. Yeah, I think I'm with you on that because especially for uh, a technical book, you know, sometimes you'll write a thousand words, sometimes you'll write, you know, 10 words and then hit a stumbling block or something that you don't know how to explain. So it's really hard to set fixed goal like, like this, at least for me. I like to use uh, IA Writer because there's no, you can't format it. And I would spend way too much time trying to pick the right typeface and the right line height. And the right, I would spend too much time tinkering with it. So I start all of my writing in IA Writer just because I, it is what it is. You can't do anything to it. And then once I've written it, then I bring it into something else and I, I start playing with it and I start rearranging it and that sort of thing. But I write, the, the reason I do the, the, the daily practice as well, and obviously this might be different for Nathan, is because I'm trying to get better at expressing myself through writing. So even if what I'm writing is just like stream of consciousness or just total crap, I'm still trying to get out. And sometimes I write about topics that I would never publish, but I'm just trying to get it out and trying to, because writing in your own voice is, is harder to do than it seems. It seems easy to be yourself in your writing when it really is difficult and it takes a lot of work sometimes to be able to do that. So uh, the daily practice has really helped me with that for sure. Yep. Yeah. Um, one, one of the other reasons I, I hit a specific goal every day is um, because not doing that, I would hit a writer's block of some kind and then not push past it. I would just go, oh, I'm stuck. I'm not inspired. And I give up a few minutes in and not push past it and force myself to do it. Often I get stuck in a particular area and I switch to writing for a different project writing a blog post, um, something like that. But um, Do you find yeah. you get less writer's block the more that you write? Yeah. Um, another thing, perfect solution for me for writer's block is I go down to my favorite local cafe, either get a glass of wine or a mimosa, depending on the time of day. <laughs> and uh, I always write much more. So... <laughs> <laughs> You know the one I thing that's recommend been, a little bit of alcohol. Yeah. So the one thing that's really helpful for me in terms of getting writing done is having a deadline. 
So when I said I was going to publish this thing September 1st, uh, that that's what helps me. I, so I might not be writing every single day, but uh, I, I know that I've got to get this thing done by September 1st. Um, yeah, I want to I, jump in with uh, one or I guess two quick writing tips that I got from uh, it was Tim Ferriss and Neil Strauss did an interview. Um, you can find it on Tim's blog. And it was done through Creative Live, and it was really good. But two things I got out of it were, uh, one, write to a specific person. So especially when you're writing, like, these technical stuff, you know, um, where it's really prescriptive, like, do this, then do that. It, you can either come off super casual or really patronizing and, um, you know, I don't know, stuffy. And so Tim's advice on that was to write to a specific person. And so I actually wrote the book, Designing Web Applications, to my brother-in-law because he was learning, he was a web designer learning to design software, and he was right at that exact point. And so I didn't write it in this, these totally vague terms. I thought, what does Philip need to know about this particular topic? And I, and I wrote it what I wanted him to know about that. And that helped me get past so much writer's block. Sometimes I even put in, you know, Philip, comma, hit enter twice, and then start writing that section as if it was exactly an email to him. And that helped me a lot. The other thing is when you hit something that needs research, so a date, anything specific, uh, just type in the letters TK and move right along. And that's just um, a way of saying, you could write to do or something else, but it's just saying like, I'm going to come back to this later. And that way you can keep your, your, your thought process going um, and the only reason for TK is because it doesn't really appear in the English language. Um, though it does, unfortunately, appear in the name of my app, ConvertKit. Uh, so <laughs> it doesn't work for me. But um, anyway, those two writing tips have helped me a lot. And I think now we should do questions. Yeah, uh, we've got a bunch. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try my best. And those of you in the chat room, if I've missed something, um, Maybe just repost it. We'll try to get to as many of these as we can. Uh, and some of these might we might cover in the, the next two sections about publishing and promoting. But um, first question, how have you gotten over the hurdle of not feeling like enough of an expert to self-publish something people will find valuable? If you get paid to do that, then that's a good, Nathan said that in the beginning. If you get paid to do something, then chances are you're an expert enough to write something that somebody else will want to read. So that's always a good thing to, uh, that's, an e that's the easiest way, I think, is if somebody's paid me to do web design for 15 years. So I feel confident as an expert to write about that. I've owned a business for 15 years. I feel confident that I can write about that. So that, that's a really good point that uh, Nathan brought up in the beginning. Yep, I think that's good. Okay, um, got a question about promotion. I think we'll wait on that one. Um, maybe talk about uh, what scares you most about publishing your own stuff. Was there any time where you guys were in the midst of releasing something that you had any kind of fear? I think what scares everybody is releasing the book and then nobody buys it, uh, simple as that. And I mean, that's why there's books like Authority that teach you how to minimize that fear and that risk. Of course, you can make it go away completely, but there are steps, you know, like setting up an email list or you know, doing stuff like that. So there are steps that you can take to minimize the risk. And uh, for me, for my last book, I wasn't really that afraid that it, it wouldn't sell because I knew, I knew there was a demand. I, I knew there wasn't any reason for people not to buy it. So. Apart from that, uh, no fear. I, th I think you'll always have fear of some kind. Um, when I came out with my first book, I had no idea if people would buy it, um, and it sold really well. The second one, I, whether rational or not, I had the fear of um, I can't repeat the success from last time, and I was able to. And then for even for authority, I thought, okay, I was successful with design books, but nobody's going to buy a book where I talk about writing books. Um, and I was wrong every time, but I guess my point is that I've come to terms with that I'm always going to have some kind of fear like that, um, and I need to push through it and launch and build the product anyway. 
Same. And I think that you brought up a good point with, I think I was more scared the second book because you've already established that, oh, well, you can sell so many books. You can, you can do this and your name's out there as an expert or an authority or as an author or something. And then you put something else out and it's like, well, if that flops, then I'm going to look way worse than if I put something out that nobody really knew who I was anyways. So then, so I don't know for, I think it gets worse for me every time I, I launch something or I release something and I just get more afraid. But I mean, everybody brought the same point. Like, I think we're all afraid in some way and we all just kind of push past that because we know the reward is accomplishing something. And, and that's, that's a good thing. Yeah, yeah, I think that it's normal to be worried at different parts of the process and have thoughts. And um, and uh, I think it's actually good to talk about that because sometimes in our industry, we have a lot of people that are really self-confident and or seem to be really confident and, you know, they never get anxious about anything. But the truth is, if you're like the night before launching something, you're going to have some anxiety <laughs> about what's going to happen. And uh, maybe the best thing you can do is ask, what's the worst thing that can happen? You know, like no one's going to die if, uh, if I release this and no one likes it, right? Yeah, James Altucher has pretty much the same thing. He says, if I, have this, if I try this idea, will I die? Or will I never be able to have another idea again? If the answer is no, then it's not as bad as you think it's going to be. Even if the very worst thing happens, it's not going to be the worst thing that could ever happen. Exactly. Okay, let's keep going. Um, what is one thing you would do differently on your next book? Who wants to take that? Nathan? I don't know that I have anything. Um, yeah, I, I've kind of come out with a system that I, I really like, um, and I refined it with designing web apps, and it worked well for authority, and so I'm just kind of sticking with that. I think I will say one downside of books is uh, they have a huge spike up front and then sales tend to drop. Um, and so it's not what I would do differently with books. It's maybe uh, looking at products long-term, I'd look for things that have recurring revenue or ways to build ongoing revenue in, into any kind of a product. Um, yeah, so, yeah, I think there will be like an evolution from you know learning material as eBooks to learning material as platforms you know, things like uh, Treehouse or, uh, I mean, there's lots of them now, but I think there will be even more. And I also think that tools are going to come out to make creating those platforms easier. So you don't have to develop your own every time. So I think for exactly that reason, there will be a, a, a switch to that model over the next couple of years. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's keep going then. Uh, and maybe what we'll do is answer a few more and then go to the next section. Is that okay with yeah. you guys? Perfect. Uh, I think this is a good one. Uh, from the consumer perspective, self-published works are a minefield of quality. What steps do you take to ensure that you have a quality book? Do you hire editors, illustrators, etc.? Yes, I can, I can take that one first. I have an editor that I work with, that I work with for all my books, and she, the, the job of an editor is to push you to write more and to write better, and also to make you seem smarter. Because they know, like, I don't know the, like, the ins and outs of all the grammar or the English stuff. So, and it looks bad. Like, if you publish a book and there's spelling mistakes or typos or that, obviously that happens sometimes. But you can minimize that if you have a copy editor or an editor or that sort of thing. And I think the other thing is that because there's a, there's a lot of ebooks now, is having that social proof. It's just like if you're trying to sell any kind of product. If you have social proof, then kind of put that forward. If you have testimonials or people are talking about it on Twitter, or if a magazine or a publication mentions you, then showing all these things that you exist and that your product exists outside of the website that you constructed is a good and it's a good selling feature to show people, to give people the trust that they need to click the buy button and to put in their credit card. Yeah, the. Uh... I think about this a lot, actually, and maybe one thing I wanted to talk about was if we all think the ma the market is getting saturated for self-published books. So maybe we'll end this section on that topic. Um, I use right now I use Draft, like I said before, and they have uh, you can hire an editor right in their interface. I think it's like 15 bucks or something like that. So I've used that a couple times, 
And between that and sharing it with other people and having them read it and give me feedback, that's what I'm doing for editing and kind of quality control. Yeah, um, I guess I'm a bit lucky in that my mother is a professional copy editor. And so she edits all of my books. Um, nice. And that's worked out really well. Uh, Paul, like what you said, I seem a lot smarter because of her, you know. There's a lot yeah, of stupid editors. stuff that would have made it into my book if I yeah. wasn't paying someone to make sure that didn't happen. Yeah, editors make a huge difference. And even even if you can't afford an editor, having a friend or two just proofread it. Like even if you have no money and you're putting something out, have somebody else read it before somebody's paying for it to read it. And mistakes will happen. You're yeah. not going to to get a perfect book out there. That's okay. It's an ebook. You can release more versions. You didn't just kill a thousand trees to to print it, you know. So anyway, I think it'll you'll be fine with with some mistakes, but definitely put the work in. Um, I know somebody who hired um, a designer on Dribble to do beautiful illustrations for his book, you know, for every chapter, for the cover, and everything. And so all of that plus the website cost a thousand bucks. So if that gives you an idea of what's possible, and and there's fantastic design work, so there's that seems of really cheap. That yeah. seems really really cheap. So you might have to spend a little more than that, unless you, you you might have to. But what I'm trying to say is that like, you can find good people out there, and um, and it's not going to cost you ten grand to get your book illustrated, yeah. Unless you have crazy, you know, things you want done. So Justin, you were talking about uh, saturation. Yeah, but what do you guys think about that? Do you think the market for self-published books is saturated right now? I, I was thinking like, because it, it, you know, there was a few people doing it, like Amy Hoy and Chris Gilbo and all those people, and now there's like grassroots people that came up, like Nathan Barry and all you guys, and now it seems like there's a lot of established people getting in. So like Addy just released a book and. So I'm wondering if we think there's, is there too many players in this space now? I don't no, think so. No. I think maybe it seems this way to us because we're so like involved in this space and a lot of people are, are well, it's true that there's a lot of books uh, that are marketed to people like us. So books about writing books or books about marketing. So uh, that specific niche might get saturated, I think soon. But I think the vast majority of ebooks are still about, you know, other things like actual top real topics like, you know, CSS or uh, food or, you know, whatever. And that will never get saturated. I think there will always be demand to pay, you know, 50 bucks or less for high quality content that um, is really specific to a topic you care about. So instead of going through, you know, 50 blog posts all over the internet, you just want to spend a little bit of money to get the best stuff on that topic in a PDF. Um, and I, I don't think it'll become too saturated. We also tend to run in really specific circles on the internet. And so when we see something, we think, wow, the whole internet is talking about this. When in reality, it's your tiny little corner and there's like 12 people who talked about the same thing and, and, People view that as saturation. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think the the hard thing is that if uh, if you're already in and you already have an audience, um, it's easy for anyone to say that you you know it might not be as saturated. I think certain niches can definitely get saturated. And uh, Rob Walling was just commenting on this in his podcast. He says that the number of people requesting interviews from him for ebooks has gone way, way up. So he, he noticed a, a noticeable increase in the number of people that were contacting him to do either video interviews for that, like a package, or to interview him for the book. And uh, so there could be something there that there's a lot more people jumping in. And if that's true, and there is you know more saturation, it'll just mean that the quality has to go up, the uniqueness has to go up. Uh, you're gonna have to offer something that no one else is doing. Um, and you might have to be willing to uh, pivot what you originally wanted to do for what you're hearing is the actual need out in the marketplace. 
I think the key point is quality. I mean, interviews are very interesting, but they're also very easy to do. So that, that's why, I mean, uh, there's a lot of eBooks that are just a collection of interviews. And, you know, unless you're a professional interviewer and you have experience doing that, your questions uh, might not always be interesting. And that results in a lot of uh, low quality eBooks. And I mean, if that gets saturated, then uh, I mean, who cares? Because it will only uh, push people to make higher quality books and higher quality content. So overall, I think it's good. Yeah. And maybe that's something else we have to be prepared for is right now there's not a lot of ebook critics. So there's not a lot of people out there like critiquing books and uh, it's a fairly friendly uh, space right now. But I think eventually people are going to start saying, because I've downloaded, I've paid for a few bad ones. And um, you should read some of my comments on Goodreads. There are, there are reviewers that don't like stuff that are vocal. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying that there's it's still pretty friendly and yeah and, uh, you know uh, it 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 might get a little bit more competitive in that sense in terms of quality anyway um, yep. should we move on to uh, publishing yeah sure. so the the first we've kind of covered this uh, do we want to talk about publishing tools at all anymore um, we talked about what we write in but maybe not what we create the end product in Sure. Okay. So why don't we, we do a quick round on that? What do you create the end product in, Paul? I use pages and then I export to PDF and to EPUB and then I run it through, I think it's called Caliber to make a Mobi file. And I know I'm a professional designer and I should do something like InDesign or whatever. Pages works for me and it's always worked for me and it's easy. I draw, I draw my graphics in Illustrator and I save them as a PDF and then I put them into pages and it works, and it's easy, and it's quick. I, I actually used Pages for my first uh, book too, and I really liked it. But then for my second book, I I started out with Pages, and I started out, you know, evaluating, okay, should I do it with Pages, InDesign, iBooks, all these uh, apps, and then I realized that maybe the way, best way is just to do it in HTML. So um, that's what I ended up doing. Like the book, uh, the actual content is uh, in Markdown, and I use uh, Middleman. So Middleman, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Jekyll, but Middleman is basically the same thing. It's a static site generator, and it takes uh, Markdown files and converts them to HTML. And I can then take these HTML files and convert them to EPUB, PDF, uh, uh, mobile, whatever I need. And I actually really like doing it that way, although it's a little bit more work, but it's uh, really flexible. I mean, it's just HTML, so you can do whatever you need. You can, uh, you're not limited, you know, to headings, paragraphs, uh, list, whatever you can, any CSS, any HTML you can have in the website, you can have it uh, in the book too. Well, there's there are a few limits with the EPUB formats and what CSS get parsed and so on, but it's still, uh, much more flexible, and you know, if if you're uh, starting out a big ebook project, I would uh, really recommend considering this because although there's a bit more technical, uh, you know, problems up front in the long term, I think it makes sense. Yeah, I use um, iBooks Author. At the beginning, when I first started writing the App Design Handbook, I looked around to what everyone was using sent emails to everyone I knew who had self-published an ebook and uh, kind of I got a different answer from everybody you know um, and I, I tried them all out in design at first looked the most promising uh, but turns out I it really frustrated me and iBooks author ended up being really really great at just generating a nicely designed PDF and it was just the right amount of uh, design flexibility with just letting me get the book out the door quickly. Uh, so I, I've really enjoyed designing in iBooks Author. Uh, it has quite a few limitations, but those limitations also help you, I think. Um, I should say that I only use the export to PDF function. I've never actually published an iBooks file to the Apple Store. That's a good topic as well. Yeah. Uh, I'm using iBooks Author too because it's free, 
Um, and I, like I said before, I use draft, uh, drafting.com for writing the, the initial part. Uh, someone just asked uh, about usage statistics. So iBooks author does have some, some usage stats in there in terms of how many words you've written and things like that. And uh, draft, uh, drafting.com also has uh, like a daily counter and it'll give you a chart on how many words you're writing a day, uh, et cetera. Um, what about uh, what about outsourcing? Do any of you what uh, I think? Do any of you guys outsource illustration? Uh, we talked about editing, but other kinds of things for your book. I'm having somebody um, illustrate the cover of my next book. Yeah. I actually outsource the actual conversion process from uh, from HTML to EPUB and uh, and uh, mobile. So because there's uh, quite a few steps, and so I had a guy running through it and then write down the steps for me so I didn't need to figure out the exact settings and caliber. And I think it's, uh, I mean, people, when they think about outsourcing, they usually think about, you know, outsourcing big things like editing or illustration, but even small processes, small things that will still take you like a day to figure out, uh, you can outsource them to somebody who, who has the experience and who does this all the time and it will save you a lot of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I outsourced video editing for the videos um, to go with authority and uh, designing web apps. Um, but I think, oh, and I outsourced coding up uh, the sales page for designing web apps. Like I designed it in Photoshop and then just spent 80 bucks to have it coded up by somebody. Um, I mean, a good rule of thumb is whether or not you doing it would add more value. And for coding up the sales page, it wasn't going to add any more value, so I didn't do it. And it saved me, you know, half a day or more of time. So I felt that was a good use of money. And also, when you're writing a book, you can really figure out, okay, if I outsource this and it costs me 80 bucks, it's the cost of like four books. So if, yeah. you know, if I sell four more books, uh, it, so uh, almost like it was free. So it makes it very easy to outsource things. Yeah. Um, and, I, and this is actually another thought I keep having is that in this space now, because there's so many people interested in, in doing this, I think there's a lot of opportunity for people that want to get some experience in self-publishing, but don't want to write a book yet. Uh, if you have some skills in design and copy editing and illustration and web, anything like anything that, you could use to help authors. Um, I think there's a lot of opportunity right now. So if you wanted to become like a professional iBooks author theme creator, uh, I think that there's a market for that right now. Um, and I would probably, I would probably, you know, need your services for my next thing. So uh, that that's one idea. If you're looking to get into this stuff and you want to learn from some people that are really good at it, you might want to start offering services around uh, the ecosystem here. Yeah, I'll just plug uh, iBooksAuthorTemplates.com. It's run by my friend Jess, and uh, she sells a um, bunch of great templates for iBooks Author. So. Yeah, that's what I'm using right now. So the other reason I chose iBooks Author is because I'm not a designer, and I wanted to uh, be able to just use themes that were already available. And uh, I sent out a bunch of beta releases of my my of amplification and one of the comments that came back was oh it's so well designed i didn't know you could do that so uh sometimes i think you you know there's some things you don't need to be super uh you know unique on if there's a theme that works it's better to get it out with that than uh not do anything at all can we take a question from the chat room yeah, yeah. Uh, people have been talking about um for example publishing the html version for free online and then charging for, for the download uh, there was also somebody who pointed out that uh, Frank Kimero has his, uh, uh, he open sourced his book's content. So uh, yeah, yeah, I'd like to talk about that idea of uh, giving actually the whole book for free or um, also like Amy Howe said, the idea of publishing a book for credibility, not for money, must have been invented by a publisher. <laughs> uh, well, you know, the, the first thing, so I was in, uh, I was not in technology until 2008. And then the first thing I read when I got back into technology in 2008 was Getting Real by 37 Signals. And um, 
that was a book published for free online, but you could pay for the PDF. And, um, uh, you know, they made thousands and thousands of dollars off people buying the PDF, even though you could read it for free online. The word you're looking for. Yeah. Really? Did they make millions off that? No way. Uh, um, maybe not plural millions, but at least, <laughs> at least singular. Um, also, you know, we've got Michael Hartle in the chat room right now. Um, he wrote Rails Tutorial. Um, so railstutorial.org, I believe. And uh, he's been insanely successful um, at uh, giving the book away for free and, and charging for other versions of it. Um, if he wants to pipe in in the chat room with how much it's made him in the last year, uh, you know, he can do that. But I will tell you, it's a lot of money. <laughs> well, I actually learned Rails um, with his book, but I didn't pay for it. So I just used the free version. I guess I should go and go back and buy it. <laughs> but I, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure it's a valid strategy, but it's also kind of risky, right? Because um, it depends on your market and how many people you can reach. I don't, I don't know. I know that uh, it's something like people ask us, oh, is your book about Meteor going to be open source? And from the start, we knew it, it wouldn't be because our goal was to uh, to make a living with that. So I, I don't know, have, have any of you guys, would you consider publishing something like that for free or? Uh... I think one, one of the risks is that uh, people use it as an excuse. So they're scared of sales. And so they use it as an excuse like, oh, I'll put this up for free and then, you know, see what the response is. And the problem with that is that uh, people who will read something for free, is, it's completely different than people that will pay for something. And the feedback you get might not be helpful at all. So I think the one thing is, you know, to think about whether this is an excuse or if you actually have a plan for how you're going to, you know, move forward with that. I've used samples before. I have my uh, Be Awesome Online business, I think, has the first three or four chapters. So it's enough to get people interested. But then on the last page, there's a link to buy it. And that's like I have it through a bit.ly link, which keeps track of clicks. And that the conversion on that is way better than the conversion on my sales page. So having a bit of the book for free and then having it's just like on iTunes where you can listen to a minute or 30 seconds of an album. You see if you like it, and then the likelihood of you buying it after you've listened to it or after you've read it in the case of a book is much higher. Um, I also gave Eat Awesome Away for free one Black Friday just because I was pissed off at vapid consumerism. And then, and I think I gave away, I think people downloaded it 14 or 1500 times. But then the next day, my sales skyrocketed. So even though I gave it away, it was only for a very short amount of time. And it wasn't even a marketing trick. I was just, I just didn't feel like people buying more stuff that day. But then the next day I sold a ton, like I sold way, way, way more. And then I got also, I got a lot of requests for interviews and publicity because of that. So I think if you are gonna give it away for free, maybe it's limited, but still, I think if you're writing books, then you should be hopefully trying to make a bit of money off of it. Even if money isn't the main goal, you should be, if you put all that work into it, it's worth money, so. I, I would say charging for your book should be the default unless you have a strategy um, where giving it away for free is going to benefit you more in some other way. And, you know, Michael Hartle, 37 Signals, um, Pat Flynn, uh, he wrote an architecture guide years ago. Um, it's made him close to half a million dollars, I believe, that he, he gave all of that away for free and then sold another version of the same thing. Um, so plenty of examples that it has worked, but I would say that your default should be to charge unless you have a good strategy. Yeah, I think that makes sense. Uh, also, one thing I want to point out, if you do decide to give it away for free, I mean, think about the people who already bought it. Uh, you know, it's kind of, uh, you never want to, you know, charge full price and then the next day start, hey, it's free now. And then you have all those people who like your best fans, your best customers who bought it early, who uh, won't be very happy about it. So yeah, it's good to that. go the other direction to reward the people who buy it first, who are 
the biggest supporters if you were really part of your tribe and your inner circle and the, the biggest fans of what you do. If you offer the first, if the early adopters get a bit of a discount and then it goes back up to full price, I found that's worked a lot better because I've done that for one of my books, but not for the other. I did it the other way. And having it a bit cheaper to begin with to get the traction and to get the ball rolling and then putting it back, but saying it's on sale now for this day or for this week and it's going to be a regular price so people know it's coming so they can make the decision, do I want to be an early adopter and get it before anybody else is talking about it, or do I want to buy it at regular price once I see that people are actually enjoying what, they're, what they've bought. So should we talk about pricing then? Sure. Yeah, good. yeah, we're into that already. So uh, how, uh, let's, well, Nathan's talked a lot about this. Let's, let's, start, with, um, let's start with Jarvis. What, what, how do you price your books? <laughs> sure, <laughs> a divining rod maybe. Um, well, I have, I have, I've tried it both ways because I've read. Obviously, I was reading Nathan and uh, Sasha's back and forth with pricing high versus pricing low. So I figured I'll do one book low and then one book high. So my first book I priced at five bucks. Now it's a dollar, and then my second book is seventeen dollars. So I tried it. I've tried it at different different places, and the one at seventeen has actually made more money. It sold half the copies but made a lot more money at a much higher price point. But I also think the subject matter is important. Like a vegan cookbook isn't going to have as much value for people with more spending money as like a business book. So if it's a business book, you can tend to charge more. At least that's what I found. And as well, like it just, I, I've played with pricing for all of them. And I kind of found a sweet spot for, for both of the books. So it's, Kind of whatever, what you think is, is worth it to you to release it kind of does have some merit. And it's also a bit of a science and a bit of a guessing game at the same time. Yeah, I think pricing is very, very subjective. I mean, even for the same product, the way you market it and the way you present it can uh, have a huge impact. So uh, I think maybe we'll talk about, uh, you know, post, uh, posting your book on Amazon later, but for example, if I'm if, if I see a book on Amazon, like even ten dollars will just seem expensive, and like twenty dollars, it's double what any other ebook would cost. So it seems like a huge price. On the other hand, uh, if I see a Nathan's book for uh, thirty nine dollars, um, it, it will seem like a good deal because I know there's good value and I know it will help me do my job. So the way you, you frame the whole context of the book is very important. So uh, yeah, for our book. Um, it was the same thing like we knew this was a book that would teach people skills that they can put to use in their job that they can use to earn money so it made sense to price it high at least for the second books my first book was priced low and that was partly because it was much much shorter and also because it was my first book so i wasn't sure what to expect yeah i think uh for me as a beginner um Pricing's tough, and I, you're, it is hard to figure that stuff out. I think what I ended up doing is, uh, and we kind of alluded to this, is instead of me marketing this as a book, I'm, I'm marketing it as a downloadable course. And so the idea is that it's not just a, a, you know, an ebook that you're going to read. It's going to have videos and some worksheets and some other things. And this is going to be the equivalent of you taking uh, a course on the on the topic. And uh, I, I priced it at $29, and I did pre-sales for $10 off. And um, that just seemed like, in some ways, I just want to, for me, it was just I wanted to push myself to see, well, how high could I make it as someone that's starting out uh, without going too low, but not wanting to go too high and, you know, not having any results. So. And people are asking about uh, how to test pricing without p pissing people off. Do you guys A-B test prices or do anything like that? I've never A-B tested pricing. Yeah. No, me neither. I've, I've lowered the price on my first book, but I haven't. I, I don't see a good way to be able to raise the price without pissing people off other than if it's on sale and you're clear that it's on sale. Yeah, I don't think it's very ethical to A-B test prices. I mean, aren't there laws against that or regulations? Not that, you know, even if it's if there was a warrant, I mean, it's not very fair to customers just to 
charge them ten dollars more because they have the wrong cookie, you know? I don't know. I wouldn't do it personally. I I think I think one idea of um, testing pricing is to just start selling stuff. And so uh, here's an example. So I wrote this post called uh, Just Fucking Do It. And at the bottom was, uh, no, actually in the Hacker News thread, I posted a little link to this thing for uh, uh, going into a campfire room with other bootstrappers for $10 a month. And it sold out in an hour. I said, there's 12 spots. We're just going to get whoever comes. And it sold out in an hour. And that was just an interesting exercise to say, I'm just going to put this out here. There's really no, nothing bad can happen from me testing this out. And I was like, whoa, like people will pay. It, obviously, I could have priced it a lot higher. And so you kind of start to learn like, oh, OK, I understand this. Um, and the other thing that I do is I, I use Gumroad. And um, it does allow you to have uh, to do deals. And so, like I said, I'm doing the pre-sale for $10 off. Uh, and I kind of always track, like, you know, if I tweeted out a link, did that get any sales? Um, if I had it in a PDF sample, et cetera. And you can kind of get an idea of, you know, what people are willing to pay. Yep. So I would say always price based on value. And so that would be a combination of what it's worth to you to do the work to, to put this whole thing together. Um, and then, you know, price based on the amount of value that, that the reader is going to get out of it. So for example, Brennan Dunn has a book called Double Your Freelancing Rate. He sells it for 50 bucks. You may think that's insanely high for a book, but if you raise your rate from $50 to $100 an hour, then you just paid for the book in the first hour of working at your new rate. I've read the book. It's fantastic. Totally worth fifty dollars. You know, for a lot of people, it could make them tons more money than that. Um, and so, I would say, and something that Sasha you said earlier, but if you're teaching people skills that make money, it's much easier to justify higher prices. The closer you are to the money, the easier that equation is. So, if you're selling fiction, it's going to be hard to sell it for fifty bucks. Uh, but teaching people design skills. $250 for a course around that is an easy sell, especially if people are using the company credit card to pay for it. Always keep that in mind. Always have an option. If it makes sense for companies to buy it, always have a way for them to do that and let them pay more. Um, the biggest pricing win that I've ever encountered is multiple price tiers. Um, I would say make sure it makes sense for your product. Don't just add it because I said to add it. Uh, but I, on the App Design Handbook, multiple price tiers doubled revenue, and on the other two books, it tripled revenue. So if you know of any other areas where it's like a, a quick win to triple revenue, I'm, you know, I'd love to hear them, <laughs> but that's the only one I know of right now. So definitely give it a try. I wrote about it more on Jason Cohen's blog, uh, which is asmartbear.com. I'm sure someone will paste the link into the chat. Um, and Sasha, you actually used multiple packages on your first book and that worked really well, right? Yeah, so the first one, I just had two packages and there wasn't such a big difference between them. Uh, on the second one, I pretty much uh, copied uh, what you were doing. So, and yeah, that worked really, really well. And the way I see it is allow allowing people to pay how much they wanna pay, right? So if I'm really rich, uh, if, or if my company is paying, maybe I want to support the author. So give me a reason uh, why uh, I can give you more money, basically. And it, but it also works the, the other way around. Like maybe if, uh, if I'm a student or if I have less money, have a special plan for students, have a, a light edition of the book. So, I mean, I think that's what um, having multiple tiers like this is all about. It's just letting everybody pay at their own level. Yep. You know, something that somebody said to me was, you would make more money if you just doubled the price of everything. You know, say if you sold the entire book at 99 or 250 or something and got rid of the $39 price tier. And I think they would be right. I think I would actually make more money doing that. But I don't want to exclude, there's a whole group of people, whether it's freelancers, students, uh, people who just encountered my work and, you know, don't trust my advice yet. Whatever it is, I don't, there's a whole market that I don't want to exclude. And so multiple pricing lets me 
optimize for the largest group without um, without excluding you know too many people. Yeah, and in fact, I've been thinking about maybe coming up with uh, you know even so the first price for uh, Discover Meteor is uh, thirty nine dollars. So I've been thinking about coming out with a lower priced edition, uh, maybe to, to just to reach more people and. It's not so much about making more money. It's also just about uh, reaching all those people who can't afford a uh, uh, more expensive edition or are not sure, like you said, just want to have a way to get their feet wet before uh, making the big jump. I would also say that just because people are setting a trend at $39 or whatever price in there doesn't mean you should necessarily follow it. because. Um, Sasha, I really like the example of your first book, and and I actually really like the prices that you have it at now. I believe you have it at six and twelve dollars. Is that right? Yeah. So it's a small book, um, and what you put it out in a couple of weeks, what like three weeks start yeah, to yeah, finish. Like three weeks. Yeah. And so writing your first book doesn't have to be this huge process that you work on for months and months and months. And you know, feel like you have to price high to, you know, do it based on the value. You could come out with a really good design tutorial that you put a week or two worth of work into, and sell it for ten bucks, and um, and that could be a great way to start into the self-publishing market without coming out with something huge right right up front. So, I, I would say if you're hesitant, then start small. That's it for part one. You can find the show notes at nathanberry.com slash episode four. And then uh, check back soon for part two, where we dive into a bunch of questions from the audience. Mm-hmm.